Section 7 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 4, verses 1 to 25. What shall we then say that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What then? He confirms his reasoning by an example which is sufficiently conclusive, since all points both in the subject and person are similar, for he is the father of the faithful to whom we ought all to be conformed, and there are no more methods than one by which we can all attain righteousness. This precedent would not be sufficient as a common rule in many other subjects, but since, in the person of Abraham, a mirror or pattern has been proposed of that righteousness which belongs in common to the whole church paul with good reason accommodates to the whole body of believers what had been written concerning the father of the faithful alone this instance is at the same time binding upon the jews who had no more plausible cause for glorying than to boast in themselves as children of abraham and they would never have so much presumption as to ascribe to themselves more sanctity than to the holy patriarch when it is now established beyond all doubt that the friend of God was gratuitously justified, his posterity, who claim for themselves their own righteousness by the law, overcome by a sense of modesty, must necessarily be silent. According to the flesh, some interpreters, induced by the structure of the sentence in the Greek, consider the question to be proposed in the following manner. What, according to the flesh, namely, naturally or of himself, has Abraham attained? It is probably joined to father as an epithet, for we are generally not only more affected by domestic examples, but the dignity of the race in which the Jews boasted too much is again particularly brought to view. Some consider it added by way of contempt, as in another passage those sons of Abraham are called carnal, who are not spiritual or truly legitimate. I think this epithet expressed what peculiarly belonged to the Jews, because it was more honourable to be the children of Abraham by nature and carnal descent than by adoption alone, provided at the same time they enjoyed faith. He grants the Jews to have a nearer bond of union, that he may only prevail the more on them not to depart from the example of their father. For if Abraham... The reasoning is incomplete, which ought to form the following syllogism. If Abraham was justified by works, he can boast in his own merit, but he has no cause to boast before God, therefore he is not justified by works. But not before God is the minor proposition of the syllogism. The conclusion which I have given, though Paul has suppressed it, ought to be joined to the minor. He calls it boasting when we can present anything of our own which in the judgment of God deserves to be rewarded. Which of us will dare to arrogate to himself a drop of merit when it is not granted to Abraham? For what says the scripture? It is a proof of the minor proposition or assumption in which he denied Abraham to have no ground for boasting. For if Abraham is justified because he embraces the goodness of God by faith, it follows that he has no cause for boasting, for he brings nothing of his own, save the acknowledgment of misery, which seeks for mercy, since he takes it for granted that the righteousness of faith is a succour and place of refuge to the sinner destitute of works. 
for if there was any righteousness of law or works it would reside in men themselves but they borrow by faith from some other person the supply which they want and on this account it is properly denominated the imputed righteousness of faith the place cited is taken from genesis fifteen six where the word belief ought not to be restricted to some particular saying but the whole covenant of salvation and adoption of grace which abraham is said to have apprehended by faith the promise of the future seed there stated was founded on gratuitous adoption it deserves to be noticed that salvation is not promised without the grace of god nor divine grace without salvation and we are not called to the grace of god nor hope of salvation unless righteousness be at the same time offered having laid down this position it is evident that the principles of theology are not understood by those who regard this testimony of moses as violently wrested by paul for since the promise is particular they consider the believing patriarch to have acted in a right and proper manner and to have so far been approved of by god their error consists in not perceiving faith to extend to the whole context and ought not therefore to be restricted to one member of the sentence their chief mistake arises from not beginning with the testimony of the grace of god and god chiefly labours to make abraham better acquainted with his own adoption and paternal favour under which is comprehended eternal salvation by christ wherefore abraham by believing embraces nothing but the grace offered lest it should be of none effect if this is imputed to him for righteousness it follows that he is righteous from no other cause but the boldness with which he dares expect all things from god in consequence of his reliance upon his heavenly father for moses does not give an account of the opinion which men entertained of abraham but the estimation in which he was held before the tribunal of god abraham therefore apprehended the kindness of god offered to him in the promise by which he perceived righteousness to be communicated this relation between promise and faith is necessary to be understood for fixing the proper sense of justification for the same state and condition exists between us and god as among lawyers between the giver and the gift for we attain righteousness because as it is conveyed to us by the promise of the gospel so we discern its possession by faith how this passage may be reconciled with james who appears in some measure to contradict it has been mentioned above and i will explain it god willing in james at greater length we will only observe that those to whom righteousness is imputed are justified since these two expressions are considered as synonymous by paul whence we infer that the dispute is not what are the characters of men in themselves but in what light does god view them not that purity of conscience and integrity of life are separated from the gratuitous favour of god but because where the reason is asked why god loves and acknowledges us as just christ who clothes us with his own righteousness must necessarily start up in our mind and occupy our attention now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt but to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly his faith is counted for righteousness now to him that worketh he does not mean by the person who works a character devoted to all good works which zeal ought to abound in all the sons of god but who deserves something by his own merits and the person in the same manner who works not is applied to a character who expects not to receive anything from the merit of works for it is not his wish to find believers indolent but he forbids only their acting as mercenaries who demand something from god as their just due and we have already stated that the apostle is not considering the manner in which we ought to live but the cause of salvation and he argues from contraries that god does not return us righteousness as a debt but voluntarily bestows it 
I agree with Busser, who proves the form of arguing to be derived not from one word, but the entire sentence in the following manner. If a person deserves to receive anything by his works, it is paid him as a debt, not as gratuitously imputed. Faith is reckoned for righteousness, not because it brings any merit to us, but apprehends the divine goodness. Righteousness, therefore, is not a debt owing us, but conferred gratuitously. Since, however, Christ justifies us by faith on our own earnest entreaty, Paul always regards in it the renouncing of ourselves. For what do we believe except that Christ is our expiation to reconcile us to God? The same view is given in different language, Galatians 3.11. It is evident no man is justified by the law, for the just shall live by faith. The law indeed is not of faith, but he that doeth these actions shall live in them. For as the law promises a reward to works, Paul hence concludes that the righteousness of faith, which is gratuitous, does not agree with a righteousness of works, which will not take place, if faith justifies by a regard to works. These comparisons, which entirely remove all merit, ought carefully to be observed. But believeth on him. The substance and nature both of faith and righteousness have been fully and energetically expressed by this paraphrastic statement for it clearly defines that faith bestows righteousness upon us, not because it is meritorious, but obtains for us the grace of God. For it does not only call God the giver of righteousness, but condemns us for unrighteousness, that the liberality of God may assist our poverty. In fine, none but the person who is ungodly in himself can attain to the righteousness of faith. For this circumlocution must be adapted to the circumstance of the passage, because faith adorns us with the righteousness of another, which, as a beggar, it supplicates and obtains from God. And here God is again said to justify us while he pardons sinners gratuitously, and considers those worthy of his love, against whom he could justly display his wrath, while his mercy indeed removes our unrighteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Describeth the blessedness of the man. Hence we see the mere cavil of those who limit the works of the law within ceremonial rites, since what before were denominated works of the law are now called works simply and without an adjunct. The simple and unrestricted language occurring in this passage, which all readers must understand as applying indifferently to every kind of work, must forever conclude the whole of this dispute, for nothing is more inconsistent than to deprive ceremonies alone of the power of justifying when Paul excludes works indefinitely. The opposite member of the sentence that God justifies men not by imputing sin deserves our attention, for this language proves Paul to make righteousness and the remission of sins to mean one and the same thing. This remission also is gratuitous, for it is imputed without works, which the word itself implies, for a debt is not remitted by paying it in full, but when the creditor of his mere liberality and free will cancels the obligation. What can we say of such as teach that we ought to redeem the pardon of our sins by making satisfaction, while Paul derives an argument from the remission of our sins to prove the gift of righteousness to be gratuitous? How can they agree with Paul? The pardon of sin, according to their view, is to be obtained by our works, satisfying the righteousness of God. But the righteousness of faith is here proved to be gratuitous and without works, since it depends on the remission of sins. The reasoning would be invalid if any works were required in the forgiveness of our transgressions. 
the vain imaginations of the schoolmen concerning half-remission are dispersed when examined by the language of david the punishment is retained by god according to their weak conceit while the guilt of sin is forgiven but the psalmist declares not only that their sins are concealed and taken away in the presence of god but he adds they are not imputed how can it be consistent for god to demand the punishment of sins while he does not impute we can still therefore retain the very beautiful sentence that faith justifies the person who is purified before god by the gratuitous remission of sins hence also we may infer the perpetual continuance of gratuitous righteousness during our whole life for when david wearied by his long-continued anguish and torment of his own conscience bursts forth into this exclamation he certainly speaks from his own experience and he had now worshipped god for many years after great progress in holiness he at last experienced the wretchedness of all who are summoned to the divine tribunal and cried out there is no other way of obtaining happiness than for the lord to receive us into his favour by not imputing our sins thus the fanciful hypothesis is refuted of such as foolishly imagine justification by faith to be an initial act by which believers afterwards retain that possession of righteousness by their works which they have first secured without any merits of their own the force of the opinion of paul is not weakened because works and other blessings are sometimes said to be imputed for righteousness the psalmist says in the same sense psalm 106 verse 30 that righteousness was imputed to phineas the priest of the lord because he had executed judgment upon the transgressors and avenged the disgrace of israel we have indeed heard of a human being who has performed one righteous exploit but we know one act alone does not justify a person a perfect and complete obedience in all its parts is required according to the promise leviticus eighteen five he that does these things shall live in them how then is this vengeance imputed to phineas for righteousness certainly it was necessary for him in the first place to be justified by the grace of god for such as are clothed with christ's righteousness not only find god kind and propitious to their persons but to their works whose blots and stains are covered by the purity of christ that they may not be laid to their account hence their works which are polluted by no corruption are considered righteous it is evident no work of man can be pleasing to god without such grace favour and indulgence but if the righteousness of faith is the only cause why works are considered righteous how weak is the reasoning of those who contend that righteousness is not of faith alone because it is attributed to works in answer to this i adduce the following incontrovertible argument that all works would be condemned for unrighteousness unless man be justified by faith alone the same is true concerning the blessing of god those are pronounced happy who fear the lord walk in his ways psalm 128 1 and meditate on his law day and night psalm 1 2 but since none perform this with such perfection as to fulfil the divine command all blessings of this kind are vain until we attain happiness by becoming purified and cleansed through the remission of our sins in such a manner as to be rendered fit for that happiness which the lord promises his servants on account of the jealous study of the law and good works the righteousness of works therefore is the effect of the righteousness of faith and happiness from works is the effect of the happiness which is placed in the remission of sins if the cause neither ought nor can be destroyed by its effect the conduct of those who study to destroy the righteousness of faith by works is unreasonable and inconsiderate 
but some may argue why may we not produce these quotations to prove that man is justified and rendered happy by works for the language of scripture is an express that man is justified by works as by faith and made blessed by the mercy of god we ought here to consider both the order of causes and the dispensation of the grace of god for since no declaration either concerning the righteousness or happiness of works has any effect until it has been preceded by this alone righteousness of faith and has all its parts filled up and completed by this only the necessity of erecting and establishing the latter is apparent if we wish the former to grow and appear as fruit from the tree cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also for we say that faith was reckoned to abraham for righteousness how was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision not in circumcision but in uncircumcision because mention only is made of circumcision and uncircumcision many ignorantly infer that the only question discussed is the attainment of righteousness by legal ceremonies but we ought to consider the class of men with whom paul is disputing for we know that hypocrites while they boast of the merit of works cast a disguise over their conduct by external masks the jews adopted a manner peculiarly their own and were alienated from true and solid righteousness by gross abuse of the law paul said that none obtain happiness but such as god reconciles to himself by gratuitous pardon whence it follows that all are cursed whose works come into judgment this article of christian faith is now determined that men are justified not by their own proper and intrinsic dignity but by the mercy of god even this is not sufficient unless the remission of sins precedes all works and as circumcision was the first work by which the jewish people was initiated into the obedience of god the apostle proceeds with his demonstration in this particular instance let us always remember that circumcision is considered if i may be allowed the expression as the initial work of legal righteousness for the jews did not boast in it as a sign of the grace of god but as the meritorious observance of the law and they preferred themselves to others on the ground of their superior excellence before god we now see that he is not disputing concerning one right but all legal works deserving of reward are included under this class and circumcision is particularly named for it was the foundation of legal righteousness but paul on the other hand contends if the righteousness of abraham consists in the forgiveness of sin which he safely assumes as granted and the patriarch enjoyed this blessing before circumcision it follows as a consequence that remission of sins is not given to preceding merits the argument you see is derived from the order of cause and effect for the cause is always before the effect and righteousness in abraham preceded his circumcision and he received a sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father abraham which he had being yet uncircumcised and he received a sign paul anticipates and shows circumcision not to have been a vain and superfluous rite though it did not justify since it had another very excellent use as its office consisted in sealing and as it were ratifying the righteousness of faith and in the meantime he hints from the very design of the rite that it was not the cause of righteousness for he now proceeds to confirm the righteousness of faith even that which had been procured in uncircumcision and therefore detracts and derogates nothing from this grace 
we have here also a remarkable passage concerning the common use of sacraments for they are seals as paul testifies by which the promises of god are in some way impressed upon our hearts and the certainty of grace established and though they afford no assistance of themselves yet god who willed to make them instruments of his grace makes them useful in promoting the advancement of holiness in the elect by the secret operation and favour of his spirit and though they are only dead and useless figures to the reprobate yet they continue always to retain their power and nature for our unbelief which deprives us of their effect does not undermine or extinguish the truth of god wherefore let this remain fixed and determined that the sacred symbols are testimonies by which god seals his grace upon our hearts we ought peculiarly to state that a twofold grace was represented by the sign of circumcision god had promised abraham a blessed seed from whom salvation was to be expected by the whole world the promise genesis seventeen seven i will be to thee a god depended on this gratuitous reconciliation in god was on this account included in the sign of circumcision and the like reason made it proper for the faithful to look to the promised seed god demanded in his turn integrity and holiness of life and pointed out by the symbol how it might be acquired namely by the circumcision of everything in man which is born in the flesh for the whole nature is vitiated and corrupted he instructed abraham therefore by the external sign to circumcise in a spiritual manner the corruption of his flesh to which moses alluded deuteronomy ten sixteen and to show it not to be the work of man but god he ordered the circumcision of tender infants who were unable by reason of their age to perform the command for moses has expressly declared that spiritual circumcision is a work of divine power as is mentioned in deuteronomy thirty verse six and the lord thy god will circumcise thine heart to love the lord thy god with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live the prophets afterwards explained this much more plainly finally there were two parts formerly of circumcision as of baptism now namely to testify both newness of life and the forgiveness of sins moreover because circumcision was after righteousness had taken place in the person of abraham the same order does not invariably take place in the sacraments as appears in isaac and his posterity but god determined to give such an example from the beginning that none might limit salvation to external things to be a father observe how the circumcision of abraham may confirm our faith concerning gratuitous righteousness for it is the sealing of the righteousness of faith that righteousness may be imputed to us also who believe and paul thus by a happy artifice retorts the objection upon his adversaries for if what constitutes the truth and force of circumcision is found in uncircumcision the jews have no cause to extol themselves so much above the gentiles but as a doubt might occur ought not we therefore after the example of abraham to confirm the same righteousness by the seal of circumcision why has the apostle omitted it because he considered his remarks to have settled the question for when the opinion had been received that circumcision was only of use to seal the grace of the lord its uselessness to us who have a seal divinely appointed instead of it is clearly established since therefore where baptism is established no farther use for circumcision remains he did not wish to enter into a useless dispute concerning a subject already determined why the righteousness of faith is not sealed in the gentiles if they resemble abraham to believe in uncircumcision signifies that the gentiles content with their situation have not recourse to the sign of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision 
He here alludes to the carnal sons of Abraham, who, possessing only external circumcision, boast in it with great confidence, for they neglect the other and chief point, the imitation of the faith of Abraham, which alone had procured him salvation. It is hence apparent how careful he was to separate faith from the sacrament, with a view to suffer none to rest contented with the sign, independent of belief, as if sufficient for justification, and to show that the last alone can fill up all the parts required, and complete the whole. For while he acknowledges circumcised Jews to be justified, he makes a distinct exception of their following the example of Abraham by pure naked faith. For what is intended by faith in uncircumcision, except to show that it alone without any other assistance is sufficient? we must strictly avoid dividing it into two parts lest we confound the two causes of justification the scholastic opinion by which the sacraments of the old and new testament are distinguished is refuted in the same way for they deny the power of justification to reside in the former but ascribe it to the latter if however paul reasons correctly when he proves circumcision not to justify because abraham was justified by faith the same argument is also conclusive in our case when we assert baptism does not justify men since they are justified by the same faith as that of abraham for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to abraham or to his seed through the law but through the righteousness of faith for the promise was not he now repeats more distinctly the antithesis between the law and faith, to which he had already alluded, and it is carefully to be observed, for if faith borrows nothing from the law for justification, we hence learn that it has respect only to the mercy of God. The hypothesis of such as wish to confine this to ceremonial observances is easily refuted, for if works conduced anything to justification, we ought rather to confine them to the law of nature than of Moses paul however does not oppose spiritual holiness of life to ceremonies but to faith and its righteousness the sum therefore is that the inheritance had been promised to abraham not because he merited it by the observance of the law but obtained righteousness by faith and certainly as paul will afterwards add consciences at last enjoy a firm and solid peace when they feel it to be a gratuitous gift and not a legal debt one common benefit therefore is evidently enjoyed by gentiles and jews and the cause of it equally belongs to both for if the salvation of men is founded on the goodness of god alone such as exclude the gentiles from it restrict and impede to the utmost of their power its regular course that he might be the heir of the world the apostle who is treating in this passage of eternal salvation seems to transfer unseasonably his readers to the world but in general he comprehends under this expression the renewal which we have cause to expect from christ the restoration of the life of believers was the chief object but the collapsed state of the whole world required reparation the apostle therefore hebrews one two calls christ the heir of all the divine blessings because the adoption which we have procured by his grace has restored to us the possession of the inheritance from which we fell in adam but since under the type of the land of Canaan not only the hope of a heavenly life was offered to Abraham, but the full and solid blessing of God, the apostle teaches us that the dominion of the world was justly promised the father of the faithful. The pious enjoy a certain taste of this in the present life, for however frequently they may be pinched by the straits of want, yet because they partake of the creatures formed by God for their use with a calm conscience, and enjoy earthly blessings from the hands of a propitious, willing, and kind father, as pledges and earnests of eternal life, their poverty does not prevent them from acknowledging heaven, earth, and sea to be their right. 
the wicked though they swallow up the riches of the world can call nothing their own nay they rather snatch them by stealth for they usurp them with the curse of god the pious feel it a great solace in the midst of their destitution that while they live sparingly nothing is stolen from others but they receive their lawful allowance at the hand of their heavenly father until they shall discern the full possession of their inheritance while all creatures will be subservient to their glory for both earth and heaven will be renewed for this express purpose that they may enjoy a share according to their measure in adorning the splendour of the kingdom of god for if they which are of the law be heirs faith is made void and the promise made of none effect because the law worketh wrath for where no law is there is no transgression for if they which are of the law the apostle argues from the impossibility or absurdity of the supposition that the grace which abraham obtained from his heavenly father had not been promised him by legal compact or from a consideration of his works for if this had been laid down as a condition that god regarded those only as worthy of adoption who obtained it by merit or performed the law none would then have had the courage and confidence of his being an heir of god for who is conscious to himself of such perfection as to determine the inheritance to be his due by the justice of the law his faith therefore would be destroyed for not only would the impossibility of the condition keep their minds in a state of suspense anxiety and perplexity but cast them into great fear and trembling the effects of the promises would vanish because they are only useful when received by faith if our adversaries would direct all their attention to this one reason they would not find it difficult to settle the controversy the apostle presupposes it as a matter of certainty that the promises of god lose all their efficacy if we do not receive them with sure confidence of mind what would be the result if the salvation of men were founded upon the observance of the law our consciences would enjoy no certainty but harassed with unceasing disquiet would at last sink down in despair the promise itself should its fulfilment depend on an impossibility would from this very cause vanish without producing any fruit away now with those who teach the miserable people to procure salvation by works since paul expressly declares the promise is abolished if it rests on works but it is particularly necessary to know that faith if maintained by works is reduced to nothing for we hence learn what faith is and the character of the righteousness of those works in which men can safely confide the apostle teaches us that faith perishes if our mind does not securely rest on the goodness of god faith therefore is not the mere acknowledgment either of god or of his truth it is not indeed the simple persuasion that there is a god that his word is truth but a certain knowledge of divine mercy conceived from the gospel which can secure peace and rest of conscience with the god of love the sum therefore is that if the observance of the law is the foundation on which salvation rests the mind will not be able to enjoy any confidence in it nay all the promises offered us by god will prove vain and inefficacious thus we shall be left in a deplorable and ruined state if we are referred to works while the cause and certainty of faith is the object of our search because the law worketh wrath a confirmation of the last sentence from the contrary effect of the law for since it produceth nothing but vengeance and punishment grace cannot arise from this source the law would indeed point out the way of life to men of virtue and integrity but as the vicious and corrupt are commanded to perform their duty without being supplied with powers to enable them to observe its precepts the guilty would stand accused and condemned by its sentence before the tribunal of god for such is the vicious character of our nature 
that the more we are taught what rectitude and justice are the more openly is our iniquity and particularly our obstinacy detected and in this way the judgment of god falls with greater severity on the guilty i understand wrath to mean the judgment of god which is the frequent sense of this word such as explain the wrath of the sinner to be inflamed by the law because he hates and curses the lawgiver whom he sees opposed to his desires reason with great acuteness but their arguments are altogether irrelevant to the present passage for the common use of the term and the reason afterwards assigned clearly prove that paul meant nothing else than the alone condemnation to which we are all immediately subjected by the law where there is no law this is the second proof by which he confirms what he had said for an obscurity would have rested upon the manner by which the wrath of god was inflamed against us by the law had not the reason been made more apparent because on our becoming acquainted with the righteousness of god by the law we sin more grievously against him in proportion as we have less excuse to offer in our defence for the despisers of the known will of god deservedly suffer a severer punishment than ignorant offenders the apostle does not speak of the simple transgression of righteousness from which none is exempted but transgression in his acceptation of the term means that the sinner when his mind has been made acquainted with the pleasure and displeasure of god knowingly and willingly breaks through the boundaries prescribed by the voice of the most high and in one word transgression in this passage is not a simple offence but means a determined obstinacy in the violation of righteousness the sense whether the particle be taken adverbially as i do because more commonly received and more consistent with the context or as a relative pronoun remains the same namely an offender who is unacquainted with the written law is not guilty of so great a transgression as the obstinate breaker and despiser of the divine law stands convicted of when placed before the bar of infinite justice therefore it is of faith that it might be of grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed not to that only which is of the law but to that also which is of the faith of abraham who is the father of us all as it is written i have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed even god who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were therefore it is of faith the completion of the argument may be summed up in the following manner if we become heirs of salvation by works its faith will be undermined and promise destroyed but the certainty of both these gifts is undoubted and we therefore obtain by faith that the stability of our inheritance founded on the alone goodness of god may produce an undoubted effect see how the apostle estimating faith by its firm and unshaken certainty and assurance considers hesitation and doubt as unbelief by which faith may be abolished and the promise be rendered inefficacious this doubt however is denominated by the schoolmen moral certainty and if god pleases is substituted by them for faith that it might be of grace here first the apostle shows mere grace and nothing else to be proposed to faith and that this is its object for if it had a regard to merits the inference of the apostle by which he establishes the gratuitous nature of every blessing obtained for us by faith would be false i will repeat it in other terms if everything procured for us by faith be grace all consideration of works is laid aside but the following passage more clearly removes all ambiguity and shows that the firmness of the promise is then finally secured when it rests on grace for this expression of paul confirms the state of doubt and uncertainty in which mankind are placed while they rest on works because they deprive themselves of the fruit of the promises 
Hence also we may easily infer that grace does not mean, as some fancy, the gift of regeneration, but gratuitous favour, for as regeneration is never perfect, it would never be sufficient to quiet their minds, or of itself to ratify the promise. Not to that only which is of the law. This expression applied in other places to the preposterous zealots of the law, who yield themselves up to its yoke, and boast in the confidence it inspires, simply means here the Jewish nation to whom the law of the Lord had been given. For Paul, in another place, informs us that such as are bound by the authority of the law are liable to the curse, and their exclusion from the enjoyment of grace is therefore certain. He does not mean the servants of the law who, devoted to the righteousness of works, renounce Christ, but Jews who had been educated in the law and afterwards embraced the gospel of Christ. This passage becomes plainer by resolving the sentence in the following manner not to those who are of the law but to all imitators of the faith of abraham though they had not before enjoyed the law who is the father of us all the relative in this place has the force of the causal particle for paul wishes to prove the gentiles to be partakers of the same grace since they were taken into his seed by the same prophecy which conveyed the inheritance to abraham and his seed for he is distinctly said to be the father not of one nation but of many by which the future propagation of grace is meant which was at that time confined within the limits of israel alone for unless the promised blessing was extended also to them they could not be reckoned in the posterity of abraham the past tense of the verb by the common use of scripture denotes the certainty of the divine counsel for though there was not the least appearance of such an event at that time yet because the lord had so decreed abraham is truly said to have been appointed the father of many nations the testimony of moses may be enclosed in a parenthesis so that the sentence may thus be connected who is the father of us all before him whom he believed even god for it was necessary to explain the form and kind of relationship, lest the Jews should boast too much of their lineal descent from the patriarch. A father before God means a spiritual father, who stands in that relationship to his people from the promise of God, and not from carnal descent. Whom he believed, who quickeneth the dead. The very substance of the faith of Abraham is declared by this circumlocution, and it makes the transition easy from his example to that of the Gentiles. For he obtained the promise, which he heard from the mouth of the Lord by a wonderful way, since it was given without a sign. Seed was promised to the friend of God, then dead, as if he had been fresh and active, so that it was necessary for him to raise his thoughts to the power of God, which quickeneth the dead. There is no absurdity, therefore, if the Gentiles, in other respects, dry and dead, are made partakers of the inheritance. For such as assert the Gentiles, on account of their deadness, to be incapable of grace, offer an insult to Abraham, whose faith was supported by the thought that it makes no difference whether the person called by the Lord to life be dead or not, whose power can easily raise the dead, even in the act of speaking. Here also the universal vocation of the Gentiles is brought before us by a pattern and type, which graphically depict the beginning, not of our first nativity, but of our hope of a future life, namely our rising up from nothing, while we are called by the Lord. For whatever appearance we may present, there is not a single spark about us of any good which can render us fit for the kingdom of God. For the best preparation for hearing the call of God is our complete dying to ourselves, the condition of our vocation is the raising of the dead by the Lord, 
hence his power gives being to those who are nothing the word calling ought not to be limited to preaching but in the usual sense of scripture to raising from the dead for the purpose of expressing more strongly the power of god who by a single nod raises up whom he will to display his glory who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be who against hope his faith continued such is the sense if this reading be adopted when supported by no argument nay when opposed by all the principles of reasoning and nothing is more opposed to faith than the fixing of our minds on objects of sight so that by steadily viewing these we may seek a ground and occasion for hope it may be read and perhaps more properly above hope as if he had said his faith very much surpassed any conception he could form for unless our faith flies upwards on heavenly wings and looks down at a distance on all carnal feelings it will always stick in the mire of the world the word hope when it first occurs in this sentence means the argument for indulging hope derived from nature and carnal reason hope when it is met with a second time implies faith given by god when all ground of hope failing abraham rested by faith on the promise of the lord and he considered this to be a sufficient ground for confidence however incredible in itself the thing might appear according to that which was spoken abraham when many temptations induced him to despair directed his attention to the promise thy seed shall equal the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea for paul made an imperfect quotation for the purpose of increasing our attention to the study of this part of the word of god for the apostles in all their citations of scripture are scrupulously careful to excite our more diligent perusal of the sacred records and being not weak in faith he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old neither yet the deadness of sarah's womb he staggered not at the promise of god through unbelief but was strong in faith giving glory to god and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness and being not weak in faith the passage may be thus understood by omitting one negative nor did he in the weakness of faith consider his own body but it has no effect on the sense he now enters into a nearer demonstration of the circumstance which might impede nay entirely prevent abraham from receiving the promise whatever he could see in or about himself was opposed to the effect which the promise was calculated to produce he withdrew his attention from objects of sight and as it were forgot himself to leave room for divine truth to accomplish its object he did not altogether overlook his body now dead for scripture testifies he thus reasoned with himself shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old and shall sarah that is ninety years old bear but because he totally omitted this view of the subject and resigned all his reason to the lord the apostle says he did not consider such difficulties and it afforded a proof of greater constancy to withdraw his attention from a subject which of its own accord attracted his notice than if his mind had never dwelt on such a topic both this passage and the seventeenth and eighteenth of genesis clearly prove that the body of abraham had been dead from age before the blessing of the lord so that we cannot admit the opinion of st augustine who in some part of his writings considers sarah to have been the only impediment nor ought we to be influenced by the absurdity of the objection which induced him to have recourse to this solution for he considers it ridiculous to call abraham dead when an hundred years old 
who had many children born to him some years after, for God showed his power more visibly at that time, because he, who had before been like the trunk of a dry and withered tree, when he revived by a divine blessing, not only could beget Isaac, but being restored to a vigorous age, was afterwards enabled to add considerably to his family. Some may answer, it is not contrary to the course of nature for a person to beget children at that age. If I grant this to be no prodigy, it is almost a miracle. Consider also by what a variety of labours, of journeyings, of troubles and difficulties, this holy man had been harassed during his whole life. And we must then grant he was not less decayed and exhausted by toils than broken down by old age. To conclude, his body is called dead, not simply but by comparison, for it was not probable that one, who in the flower and vigour of his life had no family born to him, would have one now when his strength was so decayed. His not being weak in faith means that he had not vacillated and fluctuated, as we generally do when our affairs are in an uncertain state. A twofold weakness attends faith, one which yields to the trials of adversity and makes us fall away from the power of God. The other springs indeed from imperfection, but does not extinguish the power of faith. For however much the mind of the believer is illuminated, many remains of ignorance continue. However much his resolution is established, great distrust and doubt still cling to his character. Since the faithful, therefore, have to wage a constant warfare with ignorance and doubt, which are the vices of the flesh, their faith is often severely shaken, and suffers from the contest, but comes off at last completely victorious. Hence, in weakness itself, they may justly be said to enjoy the greatest strength. He examined not into the promise of God by unbelief. I consider this translation to be well founded, though I do not follow the ancient interpreter and Erasmus, for the apostle seems desirous to make the observation that Abraham had not carefully examined with all the research of unbelief whether the Lord could accomplish his promise. A disquisition into any subject properly takes place when we free it from all uncertainty and wish to admit no apparent credibility until it is thoroughly investigated. Abraham, indeed, like the Virgin Mary, when she inquired of the angel how his message would be accomplished, asked in what way it could happen, but it was the question of a person struck with wonder. Holy men, therefore, when intelligence is brought them concerning the greatness of the works of God, which exceed their comprehension, immediately break out into admiration. But from wonder they soon pass on to look up with love and adoration to the power of God but the wicked mock even in their inquiries and reject all as fabulous the jews proceed in this manner when they ask how christ can give his flesh to eat abraham in the manner just now stated has no blame attached to him on account of his laughter and inquiry how a man of an hundred years old and a woman ninety should have a son because in his admiration he yielded to the power of the divine word Similar laughter and question when proposed by Sarah are censured in Scripture because she accused the promise of God and doubted it as vain. If these remarks are applied to the present subject, it will plainly appear that the origin of the justification of Abraham and of the Gentiles was the same. The Jews offer an insult to their father if they oppose the calling of the Gentiles as absurd. We ought likewise to remember that we are all in the same condition with Abraham, Everything belonging to us is opposed to the promises of God. He assures us of immortality, we are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that we are esteemed by him as just, we ourselves are covered with sins. He testifies his propitious and benevolent feelings towards us, external indications threaten his wrath. 
what then ought we to do to shut our eyes and to go past ourselves and everything belonging to us that no impediment nor delay may occur to prevent us from giving credit to the veracity of god but was strong in faith it is opposed to the former part of the sentence where it was said he was not weak in faith and implies his victory over unbelief by the constancy and firmness of his faith for none can escape with triumph from this struggle unless he borrows arms and strength from the word of god we must observe in the latter member of this passage giving glory to god that no greater honour can be conferred upon the lord than by sealing his truth by our faith as on the contrary no greater insult can be shown the author and finisher of our salvation than by rejecting his offered glory or by derogating from the authority of his word the chief article therefore in the worship of god is to embrace his promises with obedience and true religion begins with faith and being fully persuaded that what he had promised paul seems to say nothing extraordinary concerning the faith of abraham because all confess the power of god but experience shows that one of the most rare and difficult attainments is to ascribe to the power of god the honour which it justly claims for there is no obstacle however slight and trifling which the flesh does not imagine sufficient to turn away the hand of god from performing his intended work hence the promises of god often slip away from us even on the least possible temptations none without disgrace as i have mentioned denies the omnipotence of god the moment however any obstacle is presented to impede the course of his promises we degrade and dishonour the power of the most high we ought therefore to be fully convinced if we desire the divine authority and honour to possess their just sway over us that the power of the lord of hosts is more able to overcome the obstacles of the world to use a comparison than the splendour of the sun to dispel and scatter the clouds which obscure its rays we generally offer as an excuse that by our doubt concerning god's promises nothing is derogated from his power because indeed imagination can by no means supply us with a well-grounded cause for our doubt which is in itself preposterous and evidently blasphemous towards god as it rests upon the supposition that our almighty parent makes more bountiful promises in his word than he is able to perform but the defect which we feel is our own nor do we sufficiently exalt the power of god if we do not consider him superior to our own vice faith therefore ought not to look to our weakness our wretchedness and our defect but attend with our undivided care and zeal to the alone power of god for if it depended on our own righteousness and dignity it would never ascend to consider the righteousness of god the examination of unbelief recently mentioned takes place when we measure the power of god by our own standard for neither does faith imagine that god has power to accomplish his will while in the meantime he sits at his ease but rather places his power in a state of continual action and has recourse particularly to the effect of his word that the hand of god may be in a state of readiness to accomplish all the declarations of his lips and therefore it was imputed to him hence it is now more clearly evident why and how his faith has conferred righteousness on abraham because resting on the word of god he rejected not the promised grace and the relation of faith to the word is to be carefully maintained and committed to memory for faith can bestow no more upon us than it has received from the word therefore he will not be immediately righteous who impressed only with a general and confused knowledge shall conclude that god is truth but he must rest in the promise of grace now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him 
but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up jesus our lord from the dead who was delivered for our offences and was raised again for our justification now it was not written since the proof is not always conclusive from example as we have above hinted paul to prevent all doubt on this subject expressly asserts that a specimen of common righteousness had been afforded in the person of abraham which pertains equally to all this passage instructs us how we ought to derive advantage from the examples in scripture the heathens said truly that history was the mistress of life but none can make a safe progress in it as treated by heathen authors the scriptures alone justly lay claim to this office for in the first place the word of truth prescribes certain general rules according to which we may examine each individual history to make it subservient to our progress in piety in the second place it clearly distinguishes actions which we ought to take as a model for our conduct from those which we ought to avoid the history of the bible is particularly engaged in affording us instruction concerning the providence of god his righteousness and goodness towards his people and his judgments against the reprobates paul asserts that the account of abraham's life was not written merely on his own account for it is not a subject which relates to the individual calling of some certain person but that method of obtaining righteousness is described which is one and unchanging among all believers and this is exhibited in the conduct of the common father of the faithful towards whom the eyes of all ought to be directed if therefore we wish to read these sacred historians with purity and piety let us remember we ought to handle them in such a manner as to receive from them the advantage of solid learning they instruct us how to form our life and conversation how to confirm and strengthen our faith and how to excite the fear of the lord the imitation of the saints will be useful to form our life and manners if we learn from them sobriety chastity love patience modesty contempt of the world and other virtues the assistance which god was always ready to afford his saints in former ages will contribute to confirm our faith and his unceasing protection and fatherly care of them will supply us with consolation in the trials of adversity the judgments of god and his punishments of the wicked if they excite a reverential awe and deep sense of piety in our hearts will afford us much assistance in our present pilgrimage the apostle's statement that it was not written for his sake alone seems to intimate that it was in part written on his account and on this ground some understand abraham's attainments by faith to have been mentioned to his honour because the lord wishes his servants to be had in everlasting remembrance as solomon says proverbs ten seven their name shall be blessed may not this passage be understood in a sense more simple and agreeable to the context as if paul meant it not on abraham's account only which might imply some singular privilege that could not afford an example for our benefit but as supplying instruction for us and all believers who must be justified in the same way if we believe on him we have already hinted at the use of these circumlocutions which are inserted by paul to give us different views according to the circumstances of the passages of the substance of our faith and here the apostle alludes to what is not the least important part of our belief the resurrection which is the subsistence and evidence of our future life had he simply said that we believe in god it would not have been so easy for us to infer what assistance it could afford for the obtaining of righteousness but while he presents christ to our attention and offers a certain pledge of life in his resurrection the fountain undoubtedly appears from which the imputation of righteousness flows who was delivered 
he follows out and illustrates the doctrine to which we have alluded at greater length for it is of great importance to us to have our minds not only directed to christ but to have a clear proof of the means by which he has procured our salvation and though the scripture where it treats of our salvation stops at the death of christ alone yet on this occasion the apostle proceeds further for since it was his design to give a more explicit account of the cause of our salvation he enumerates both parts of this great blessing and in the first place he states that our sins were expiated by christ's death and righteousness was afterwards procured by his resurrection the sum is where we enjoy the fruit of christ's death and resurrection nothing is wanting to complete all the parts of righteousness and there can be no doubt that by separating the death of christ from his resurrection he accommodates his language to our ignorance for our righteousness as is true in other respects and the following chapter teaches was procured for us by the obedience which christ exhibited at his death but since the advantages conferred by christ's death were manifested by his resurrection this distinction is well calculated for teaching believers that our salvation commenced with the sacrifice by which our sins were expiated and was perfected by his resurrection for our reconciliation to god is the commencement of righteousness and the dominion of life after death has been abolished its fulfilment paul therefore intimates that satisfaction for our sins has been completed on the cross for the destruction of our guilt by christ was necessary that he might restore us to the father's favour and this could only be accomplished by undergoing the punishment in our stead which we were unable to bear for the chastisement of our peace says isaiah was upon him he uses the expression delivered rather than died because expiation depends on the external good pleasure of god who wished atonement to be made in this particular method raised again for our justification for it would not have been sufficient for christ to expose himself to the wrath and judgment of god and to undergo the curse due to our sins unless he had obtained a victory over the same and being received up into the glory of heaven reconciled god to us by his intercession the power of justification which destroys death is ascribed to the resurrection not as if the sacrifice of the cross by which we are reconciled to god had contributed nothing to our righteousness but because the perfection of this grace appears more distinctly in a new life i cannot agree with such as refer this second part to newness of life for the apostle had not yet begun to treat on this point and it is also certain that both members of the sentence relate to the same subject if justification therefore signifies newness of life the meaning of his dying for our sins would have been that he might acquire for us the grace of mortifying the flesh a sense which all reject as therefore paul said christ died on account of sins because after paying the punishment of sins by his death he hath freed us from the calamity of death so as he is now said to have been raised again to our justification since he has firmly renewed our life by his resurrection for he was first struck by the hand of god to discharge the misery due to sin in the person of the transgressor and afterwards exalted to the kingdom of life to present his people with righteousness and life thus far therefore he treats of imputed righteousness which will be confirmed by the following chapter End of section seven.